And let's go ahead and open our Bibles together to the book of 2 Peter, chapter number 1 tonight. 2 Peter, chapter number 1. Continuing our study tonight of the second epistle of Peter, and we've entitled this study, Growing in Grace, <clears throat> as Peter is, is emphasizing here in this, this last letter that he wrote about how important it is for us as Christians to be growing, um, to be adding to our faith, to be diligently making our calling and election sure, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we come tonight to verses 16 through 21, the title of tonight's lesson is A More Sure Word. A More Sure Word. And I want us to begin by reading together verses 16 down through verse 21. Follow along as I read out loud. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth, in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You know, if we're going to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then it is of the utmost importance that we have a source of information that is reliable. You know, we live in the information age. They've said that for years now. And it is true that we have more access and easier access to information today than than has ever been in the history of the world. And in some ways that's good, but then there's also a drawback because with that access to so much information, Uh, we have access to so much unreliable information. Um, Not everything you read on the internet is true. I know, shocking, right? Uh, But And so we have to be careful where we go to for information because depending on the source, it may or may not be reliable. And when it comes to Christian growth, having a reliable source of information is vital. I mean, it's indispensable. Because if we know a lot of things that aren't true, that doesn't help us a bit. And certainly doesn't help us add Christ-like character to our life and to get to know God better. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, Peter testifies to the believers concerning the reliability of the gospel message and of all scripture. Now, some say that the, peop- that the, the Bible is not anything more than just a collection of fairy tales. A lot of people believe that. Even professing Christians, a staggeringly low number of them, actually believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. Some people say that uh, it's a good book, a moral book, but they don't see it as absolutely true and reliable. But Peter knew otherwise, in part because he was an eyewitness 
of the ministry of Christ and of the gospel itself and of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even more sure than his personal experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, for instance, as he mentions here, even more sure than that are the written words of God that were inspired and have been preserved by God and handed down to every generation. We cannot rely on personal experience for our Christian growth, be it our own personal experience or someone else's. Because personal experience is subjective. It's often affected by our emotions and our personal experiences are unverifiable, meaning that others simply have to take our word for it. Because of that, that experience is a very unreliable guide when it comes to spiritual growth because it's dependent on us and we are not perfect. We make mistakes. The Bible, on the other hand, is perfect. It says what it says, and that has not changed since the time that God gave it. You can repeatedly verify its statements. You can go back to Scripture over and over again and come to an objective conclusion, this is what God says. We have to replace experience-driven, emotionally-based views of Christian growth with reliance on the truth of God's Word. Let's see how Peter unpacks this in these verses tonight. First of all, Roman numeral 1, we're going to note the testimony of Peter in verse number 16. Now remember, he's, he's in, previously in chapter 1, he's encouraged the believers to add to their faith Christ-like character. He's warned that if we don't do these things, we'll be barren and unfruitful. If we lack these things, we are blind and cannot see afar off. And therefore, we need to make our calling and election sure. We need to make sure that we remember these things. And by adding Christ-like character and continuing to grow, uh, we ensure that we remember the truth of Scripture. And so coming off of all of those encouragements to the believer, he begins in verse number 16 to lay, the, the, lay a foundation for what the source of our information and our truth really is. And he starts with his own personal testimony in verse 16. He makes a statement, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Now, some people would say that the gospel in all of the Bible is just make-believe. It's just a story. It's just made up. You know, I've heard it said by unbelievers, they, they said, you know, the Bible is just written by a bunch of old men sitting around a campfire one time. I'm like, well, they were pretty talented to put a whole Bible together in one night, if that's the case. But no, that's not how the Bible came to be. It's not a cunningly devised fable. There's a famous collection of stories that date back actually to hundreds of years even before Christ known as Aesop's Fables. You ever heard of Aesop's Fables? Um, there are literally, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Men translated into many different languages and, and all of them are um, short parables. He often used animals. He would personify animals in them. Uh, but in these parables, he would... Uh, tell these little short stories to illustrate certain moral principles. So there's some more famous stories like The Boy Who Cried Wolf. That's one of them. Uh, the Goose That Laid the Golden Egg. That's another one. And The Tortoise and the Hare. That's actually one of Aesop's fables as well. You've probably heard of those stories, and they're cute stories, somewhat entertaining. And we would say they teach good morals, and they do it in a very memorable way. 
And in as much as they can help us remember and illustrate uh, truth, they're not wrong, but they're just fictitious story. Okay, there, there never was a literal incident when a rabbit and a turtle faced off in a race, despite what Looney Tunes says, all right? They're just make-believe stories. They're fables, we call them. Well, some people view the Bible the same way as Aesop's fables. They say it's just a collection of stories. They're not, they didn't really happen. It's not literal history. They're good moral stories, and they, they you know, but they're not literally, actually true. And some people may even have a, a high view of the Bible, meaning they have a lot of respect for the Bible and say that it teaches a lot of good things in their opinion, but they don't believe that it's literally true and literally God's word to man. But Peter knew different, especially with the message of the gospel. He knew that the message of the gospel was not a fable. It was not a fable, not a made-up story. And remember, in the verses right before this, he's talking about how he was going to always put them in remembrance. He wanted them to remember these truths. Even after he died, he was really trying to impress the truth of the gospel and its implications on our lives upon the believers, not because he thought it was a great story, but because he knew it was literally true. He knew because he was, an, notice what he says in verse 16, he was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty and the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knew it because he saw it. Peter walked with Jesus, even on water. He talked with Jesus. He saw Jesus do so many miracles. He was there when Jesus was arrested. He watched as Jesus was beaten and he knew what was going on. He saw all of that unfold. He was there after Jesus' death. He went to the empty tomb the morning that Jesus rose from the grave. He spoke with Jesus after the resurrection. He saw Jesus ascend back to heaven. He heard the angel say, Jesus is coming again. The point is, he was as qualified as anyone to testify to the truth of the gospel. So if somebody says, Peter, how do you know that the gospel is true? He could literally say, because I saw it. I was an eyewitness. In fact, even the Apostle Paul mentioned the testimony of Peter when affirming the truth of the resurrection. He said in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul wrote, For I delivered unto you first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas. That's Peter's other name. He was seen of Cephas, Peter, and then of the twelve. So even the Apostle Paul said, we know that the resurrection happened. It's true. Just ask Peter. He'll tell you. Peter had firsthand knowledge of the gospel and of the ministry of Christ. But I think it's important to note that he did not use that first-hand knowledge to puff himself up. But rather, it's what motivated him to earnestly proclaim the message of the gospel to everyone. He knew it was true, so he wanted to tell other people too. 
Turn over to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Acts chapter number 2. It was Peter who stood up on the day of Pentecost to preach the gospel for the very first time after the Holy Spirit had come and indwelt the believers. I want you to notice just a couple of verses. Verse 32, this is Peter speaking. He said, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. I've seen it. I know it to be true. Now look down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He didn't say, I saw it, look at me, I'm someone special. He didn't build an empire for himself based upon his firsthand knowledge, but he used that firsthand knowledge to point others to Christ. That was his motivation. His testimony was one that pointed other people to the Savior, not to him. As we grow in grace and in knowledge, we must be careful that we don't allow ourselves to get puffed up in pride. And we must not neglect our responsibility to share the knowledge we gain with others, not to boast about how much we know, but to share the wonderful truths of the gospel so that others might be saved. Peter was a witness of the majesty of Christ. Roman numeral 2, let's note now the transfiguration of Christ. We've seen the testimony of Peter. But he ended verse number 16 by saying he was an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ. He used that word in particular to describe an event that took place. That He, went, he goes on in verses 17 and 18 to expound on that. He was not thinking about the majesty of Jesus in general, but a specific event. Listen again to what he says. He says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. What he's talking about there is the mount of transfiguration. It was a time that Peter, James, and John were the only three who got to be there to witness this very special event when Jesus went up on top of a mountain to pray and he was miraculously changed before, his, before their very eyes. Let me read to you Matthew's account. If you want to follow along, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 6. This is how Matthew records the, the transfiguration of Christ. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. That's what Jesus, or what Peter was talking about in Second Peter, when he said, we were with him on the holy mount. We heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. 
It was this event. Peter was there. He saw when Jesus was miraculously changed before them. It's described by Matthew as his his face shining as the sun. His clothes, his garments changed to being bright white, white as light, he says. He saw Moses and Elijah. He heard them talking with Jesus. He, He was there when the cloud overshadowed them. He heard the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And Peter was so overcome with that situation that he didn't even know what to say, which was pretty hard for Peter. But in Peter-like fashion, he said something anyway. Because he spoke up and he said, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, Jesus. One for you, Moses. And one for you, Elias. And Mark 9, verse 6 says, for he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And that's when God spoke up and said, This is my beloved son, hear ye him. At that point, Peter was so overcome that he fell on the ground in fear. We cannot even imagine what it would have truly been like to be there on the Mount of Transfiguration and experience that. However awesome you think it might have been, it was a thousand times more awesome than that. And Peter was there. He was one of only three people that got to witness it. He, James, and John. That was it. He was an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ. He got to see a hint of Jesus' glory. Remember, Jesus had to set aside His glory for a time to come to earth and become a man. But there on the mount, Peter, James, and John, they saw a glimpse, a little hint, a little glimmer of that glory. What I think is very interesting about this is, have you ever thought of this? It was a multi-sensory experience. He saw, he heard, he felt, he fell on the ground. I mean, it was so impactful that 30 years later, he writes about it as kind of the, the greatest example of what he was a witness of. I find that interesting. Because he didn't say, I was there at the empty tomb. He didn't say, I was there the night before Jesus was crucified when they were trying him. He picked this one experience to say, I saw this with my own eyes. I heard the literal voice of God coming from heaven. They saw, they heard, they felt the magnitude of the situation. And and Peter shares this story again with the believers, a story which they would have known if they had uh, any knowledge of the story of Christ to remind them of what, when he says, I'm a witness, I've seen it with my own eyes. This is what he's talking about. But he also wanted to make a point. And the point that he was about to make was about the supremacy of Scripture. Or on our outline, number three, the transcendence of Scripture. Having described such an awesome multi-sensory experience as what he had on the Mount of Transfiguration, he goes on to say in verse number 20, but we have also a more sure word of prophecy. 
more sure. More sure than what? More sure than even his eyewitness personal experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Even though Peter experienced the transfiguration firsthand in all the rest of the ministry of Christ, here's the point. He did not rely on personal experience. He knew there were things that were more sure than even his own personal experience. And those things are the words of God. None of us will ever have the kind of firsthand eyewitness experience of the majesty and the glory of God that Peter did until we get to heaven. We're never going to have that. So if Peter said, I saw that, that was pretty great, but let me tell you what's better. I think we need to pay attention to what he's saying here. He knew that the scriptures are even more certain and reliable than personal experience and eyewitness testimony. Even more sure than hearing with his ears the voice of God and seeing with his eyes a glimpse of God's glory. He didn't rely on that. He went back to the Bible. I've heard people say things like, well, I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you what I've seen. What a dangerous statement. And then they go on to share as if their personal experience was actually more important than the words of God. Our experiences do not determine what is true. And our perceptions do not determine what is reality. Our emotions certainly don't decide what's right and wrong. And also, our memories can fade. Here's the thing. If we are using personal experience as the basis for our spiritual growth, if that's what we go back to when we say, well, I know what I've seen, I know what I heard, I know what I felt, I know what I've experienced, all that amounts to is self-righteousness and self-reliance. It's all about me. I saw, I heard, I felt, I know, I, I, I. And that's the problem. Because you and I are faulty. We make mistakes. Even when we don't mean to, we make mistakes. And if we're relying on our interpretation of events, if we're relying on our feelings in events, if we're relying on our memory of events, we're relying on something that is fundamentally unreliable. What we remember about our experiences can change over time. Our perspectives can alter things. God's word is the only fixed standard of truth. Everything else, including our impressions and feelings, however spiritual they may seem to us, are fallible and should be held in suspicion. Our attitude should be like Peter's. He said, I know what I saw and heard, but let me tell you what the Bible says. But sadly, many Christians today are influenced by mystical philosophies of religion. To a lot of people, if you say, if you use the term spiritual, 
what they think is mystical. Feeling God's presence, hearing God's voice in your own head. Their Christian life is not rooted in the actual words of the Bible and the truth of Scripture, but in their own vague impressions, notions, and emotions. And that's a problem. A lot of devotional material that's been written over the years is tainted with this kind of thinking. Recently, in some of my studying, I came across uh, more of it. And people talking about, you know, feeling God in any way, you need to stop and say, wait a second, what do they mean by that? Does God guide us personally through the influencing power of the Holy Spirit? I believe he absolutely does. Because Philippians 2.13 says, It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So does that mean that every idea I have is God's special revelation to me? No. Absolutely not. The only sure place you can go to know what God says is the inspired, preserved word of God. And that's why Peter says we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well to take heed, pay attention to it, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. How many of you have night lights in your house? All right, we do, because I don't like stepping on things in the middle of the night. In fact, we recently just bought like an eight pack of night lights on Amazon. Got a great deal on it. It was like 10 bucks. Because I hate going down in the morning to, uh, after I get my coffee made, to go into the living room. I have a place I like to sit when I do my morning devotions. And it's always like navigating a minefield going through the living room. And I don't want to turn the whole, all the lights on. I'm not ready for that. that. No, I just, a little bit of light so I can make sure I'm not tripping over a cord. And I don't want to do a, you know, a face plant into a cello case or something, right? So, and we got little night lights there. I just need a little light to guide me through the dark. Let's reveal if there's something I'm going to, you know, lose my testimony over. I want to know. God's word is the light for us to guide us in this dark world. Whereunto ye do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. That's a reference to heaven. In other words, you're going to need the light until you get to heaven. Because then we'll be in the light of his glory for all of eternity. But for now, we're in a world that's plagued with darkness. So we need the light. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He goes on to say in verse number 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. This verse of scripture is one of the most critical verses in having a proper view of the Bible. It's not subject to private interpretation. Your next blank there. The Bible was not the product of man's imagination. The Bible was the product of inspiration. He's going to talk about that process in the next verse, verse 21. But let's be reminded, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's literally, the word literally means, inspired means God breathed. The doctrine of inspiration is the truth that the Holy Spirit 
moved the writers of Scripture so that the words they wrote down were the very words of God. It's not subject to private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, verse 21. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. In other words, men didn't dream this up. People didn't just sit down and say, hey, let's write a book and let's say God wrote it. That's not how we got the Bible. But instead, God used certain people, in fact, about 40 different human authors over the course of about 1,600 years, God gave his word to mankind. And these holy men of God, holy men of God, important designation there, these were special chosen men separated to God that God used, they spake and that they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost was the word of God. The word translated moved in that verse is also found in Acts 27, 17. It says, this was Paul when he was in a ship in a storm, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. The word driven there is the same word translated moved in 2 Peter 1, verse 21. So just like the wind moved the ship before it, the Holy Spirit moved the men who wrote down the words of Scripture. He did it not by replacing their personality or erasing their individuality, but he superseded their own thoughts and produced through their pens words that were the very words of God. That's the doctrine of inspiration. Men did not write words and then God say, hey, that's good, I'll take that, and choose to bless it. The Holy Spirit directed the writings so that the result was the very words of God. The technical term is the verbal inspiration of God's word, the very words themselves. And because the word of God is inspired by God, it is the very words of God, we know that the Bible has all the attributes of God on it because it is his word. That means it's infallible, it's inerrant, it cannot, it's without mistake, and it's holy. It's eternal. It's perfect. And notice that God did not inspire ideas or concepts. He inspired words. Some people have a view of inspiration, which is of the scripture, which is nothing more than uh, a natural kind of inspiration. Say an artist sees a beautiful mount, a waterfall or a mountain or something, and they feel inspired to recreate it on canvas as they think about it. That's not what we're talking about in Scripture. It's not like people were thinking about God and said, oh, I think I want to write something about Him. No, that's not it. It's a supernatural inspiration where the very words of Scripture were given so that the Bible can rightly be said that it is the Word of God. In other words, God did not inspire thoughts. He inspired words. Psalm 12, verse number 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Which, by the way, let me just plug this in here. That's one of the reasons why we ought to be very particular about what English Bible we read and we study from. Because they are not all created equal. And this is not the subject of the message. I'm not going to dwell on this topic. But I will explain to you that there are translations out there that are not word-for-word translations. They are thought-for-thought translations. And the problem with that is when you read someone's thought about what they think God's thought is, you have no idea what you're actually getting. 
Well, I think God said this, so I'm going to put it in my own words and I'm going to pass it off to the next person. And then call that scripture. It's not. God gave his words. He communicated his thoughts through specific words. And if we want to relay that, we need to use his words. Now, there's a place for explanation and teaching and and explaining and all those sorts of things, but don't call your explanation, don't call your commentary, don't call your quips and comments about the Bible, the Bible. That's not what it is. There's a difference. Now, because Scripture did not come through man's imagination, its meaning cannot be determined by man's imagination or man's intellect. Now, for this, I'm going back to verse number, the previous verse when it says that the Scripture is not subject to any private interpretation. You and I do not get to pick for ourselves what the Bible means to us. God said what He meant. God meant what He said. And we need to find out what that is. How do we do that? Well, we certainly don't read a verse of Scripture and say, well, I think it means this. Now, some people use that kind of language and what they mean is I can apply it to my life in this way. I understand that. I don't have a problem with that. But when it comes to actually interpreting what does God mean by this, we have to be careful of saying, well, I think it means this to me. It may mean that to you. It could mean that to anybody, uh, somebody else. And that, by the way, is what some people mean when they say, well, the Bible's a living book. You know, it can mean this to one person and that to another person and this to another person. Now, that's dangerous thinking. The Bible means... What it means. It's not subject to private interpretation. So how do we find out what the Bible says? If we're going to grow in grace and knowledge, we have to have a reliable source of information. How are we going to come to a proper understanding then of this reliable source of information? And the answer is we can only do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth, which is what Jesus said he would do. And to help us as we study to rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now there are some who approach scripture and they have such a complete disregard for the integrity of the inspired word of God that they just twist it and they distort it and they try to make it say all kinds of things. We talked about that Sunday night. Literally redefining Scripture to fit your thinking. No, we need to allow Scripture to change our thinking. And this ties in directly to Peter's main point here. We can't rely on our own experiences or our own thinking, our own private interpretation to determine the truth. Only God's Word inspired by God, preserved by God, and defined by God is sufficient to give us the knowledge we need for spiritual growth. We need to reject self-reliance and embrace Scripture. That's the word in the blank there. Scripture reliance. So somebody says, well, I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you what I've seen. That's dangerous. We have to have a reliable source of truth if we're going to grow spiritually. We can't rely on our own experiences because they're subject to faulty emotions 
and fading memories. We can't rely on our imagination or even our own intellect. If we're going to grow, we must rely on the scriptures as the only reliable source of the truth. So let's say what Peter said. I know what I've seen. I know what I heard. But let me tell you what the Bible says. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word, for preserving it for us so that we could have it and read it today. Lord, I pray that we would be humble and realize and admit that we are faulty. We make mistakes. And sometimes the things that that we experience and our memories of it and our feelings, our emotions of it just simply aren't reliable. And Lord, I know that's hard for us because it feels like it must be true. But Lord, I pray that we would not rely on ourselves, but that we would rely on your word the word that you inspired, the word that you've preserved, the word that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us through. May we realize what a wonderful gift that really is. That we can have a more sure word of prophecy and know and verify over and over again what the truth is. So may we be people of your word so that we might be people who know you better and better all the time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.